0: to Acts chapter 6 this morning, Acts 6, uh, so in case I forget, let me mention, if you are a member of Graceview, we strongly encourage you to hang around, and I mean like five-minute meeting, like that's the real plan, in fact, it will be such a short meeting, I have no notes for it, so you know I'm a note taker, I'm a note bringer. <laughs> And I don't have notes for this one, so it really should be really quick. I mean, to the point, and we'll get you out the door. So we'll, after the service, I'll make sure that I don't forget, because Lord willing, I will get caught up in this. And um, we'll give you like five minutes to clear out, hit the restroom, grab your kids, come back in. It'll be a brief uh, five-minute meeting. Very important one, by the way. Very important one. The first of two, we'll have a follow-up meeting in four weeks from today. And you'll know why at, at that meeting. You're in Acts 6, but I'm going to have you back up for a moment. Hopefully you have your Bible open because you're not going to see these verses on the screen. I'm not going to do a long introduction because we're kind of switching in our text a little bit. Um, We're getting a report card this morning from Dr. Luke, who is a historian of the time. And he's kind of giving us the background of the early church. And so if you have your Bible, you'll have an advantage here because, again, this will not be on the screen. I'm going to hit just a few verses that give us the context of chapter 6 this morning look at chapter 4 go back there chapter 4 as you're turning there here's the scene the early church started with 120 in the upper room back in chapter 1 chapter 2 the Holy Spirit falls upon them they, they get filled with the Holy Spirit they're speaking in languages that people know they've never learned those languages Peter ends up preaching a message about Jesus on the day of Pentecost the 120 become 3,000 I mean in one day 3,000 are now in this fledgling brand new church. But things keep progressing as we go through the rest of chapter 2. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 is big because Peter ends up preaching another message, this time in the temple. And he gets arrested. He and John get arrested. But look at verse 4. Before they can take them away, the effect has already been had. Acts 4.4 is the context for today's message. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men, the males, came to about 5,000. Had 120, went to 3,000 in one day, and then just time kept ticking along and the Lord keeps adding new believers to the early church. And then a lot apparently come on this second big sermon, this time in the temple, so that now the number is up to 5,000 males. Flip over if you're into Acts 4. Look down to verse 32. This is the context of today's message. This is the context. So we know the males are up to 5,000. You can kind of figure in the women and children that are in the early church. Chapter 4, look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Man, they were unified. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. People are sharing. It was awesome. They were unified. They loved each other. Verse 38. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. Now, here's your context for today. 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them. Thousands of people in the new church. Wasn't a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, catch this, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the apostles are now having this money come in to them to meet the needs of the poor because people that have means, they're selling their houses and lands. And here they're bringing it, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And then verse 35 finishes, and it was distributed. It was distributed to each as any had need. Flip over, if you would, chapter 5. Two more quick sections so you don't get the context. Chapter 5, look at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Miracles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, this big courtyard in the temple. None of the rest, people who were not yet saved, the Jews, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in, in high esteem. And verse 14 in chapter 5 is another quick report card. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. And by the way, we're now moving forward months and possibly even years now into the early church. Verse 14 of chapter 5, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Multitudes. We already know chapter 4 said there were 5,000 males. It it just keeps on coming. The church is growing. A few weeks ago I made a comment that the best estimates they have are that Jerusalem was between thirty to 60,000 people around this time. What we're describing is Jerusalem is swelling, We know it burst at the seams when they had one of the three feasts every year. Like hundreds of thousands of people would come in the city of Jerusalem. But I believe what's being described is like, whoa, there's populations getting crowded here in Jerusalem. The spaces are getting all used up. And there's a reason. This this church thing over here is really growing. And then the last thing I'll do for context is verse 42 that I really didn't get a lot of time in last week. and That's fine. This is the context of chapter 6. So here's your context. 120, 3,000, 5,000 males, multitudes of men and women. Miracles are taking place. The apostles are are doing all these massive things. The church has basically taken over Solomon's portico there in the temple. And in verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they, meaning the apostles, did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Every day they're teaching and preaching. And remember chapter 4. There was no need because people were selling their items and bringing the proceeds to the apostles. 120. Whoa! 3,000, what are we going to do? Keep coming. 5,000 males. What are we going to do? They keep coming. They keep preaching, keep teaching. And now we have chapter 6. Look, if you would, verse number 1. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, what a glorious time, what a wonderful time. When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, it's the first time we've had this in the church. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows, the Hellenists' widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hellenists are starting a complaint against the Hebrews. Only say it if you really know the answer. Does anybody know what country is associated with the term Hellas? Greece. It's the ancient name for Greece. So I want to, because I want us to get the context as we're reading, this can be a little confusing. There arose a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. What I need you to understand right at the outset is both of these groups are Jews both groups the hellenists are Jews but there is an association with Greece they're associated with the Greek culture and you had the hebrews they're called hebrews here they're Jews too both groups are Jews the church was only Jewish at this time so don't think Jew Gentile that's happening nope that struggle is going to come in chapter 10 so both groups are Jews and i hopefully am able to briefly describe the difference in a moment i just want you to get that now so here's what's happening a complaint has arisen by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in this daily distribution. Verse 2, and the 12, we know that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples. In other words, we need both groups together. We've heard what's happening. Where did this meeting take place? I'm assuming it had to take place in the temple because nowhere else was going to be. I mean, this is a big meeting. They probably announced it. Okay, all the house churches we need, everybody can get there for this big meeting. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, so here it is, you know the complaint, the apostles said, it is not right that we, meaning the apostles, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It is not That would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We know there's a complaint. Wouldn't be right for us to stop doing this to start doing that better. Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you. There's an implied understood you there. You pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Good repute, what's another word for that? They need to have, they need to be of good repute. They need to have a good good reputation. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Did you catch that little tension there on the rope? You pick seven men, we will appoint them. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. These seven guys are going to devote themselves to the ministry of the table. We're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word. Verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Both sides are satisfied. Sounds good. That's a good solution. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is going to end up being the primary person uh, as we go through the second part of chapter 6, all through chapter 7. Very, very important man. Uh, not given the status in most Christians' mind. I mean, this guy is a giant of the New Testament. Super important. I'm not going into it today. Those phrases. Full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Back to verse 5. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Icaner, and Timon, and Parmenus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. So when they pick their seven people, they end up picking actually a Gentile who became a Jewish proselyte, and he's from up north in Antioch. And some people think that Luke was from Antioch, and that's why he kind of slid his hometown in there as he was writing. and the Lord allowed it. Not sure. But we know this. Nicolaus, he's a proselyte from Antioch. These, So they pick these seven men. By the way, I will, I'll throw this in, lest I forget later. All seven of these names are Greek names. That's interesting. Note that in your mind. All seven of the men they picked to deal with this issue, they end up picking names of men, men with names that are Greek. Doesn't mean they were all Hellenists, but it kind of lends itself to make us think that they chose all Hellenists to now lead this task. These they set before the apostles, and they, the apostles, prayed and laid their hands on them. And we'll get this next report. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Would you notice with me this morning, you guys know I love uh, three points usually today. We couldn't get around. uh, We needed at least five Um, points to make this morning. Number one, out of verse one, let's notice the problem. There is a problem in the early church. As you're writing that down, I want to make a quick confession. I am very thankful that the Lord did not allow this particular sermon uh, to come up until this time in my time period here. I'm glad it's not one of the early sermons that I preached, and here's why. Um, There can be some things that will be said today, and I'm going to use some terminology Uh, that you may not see immediately from the text, but there could be some things that are said in the tone of it that could slightly seem self-serving, and I don't want it to be anyway that. And so what I hope is after being here almost seven years, you guys know that I'm going to just go with what the text says, and and we're going to just let the chips fall where they may. This is certainly not the kind of sermon that most people would preach on a Sunday morning if they were just picking what they want to choose to preach on. But we're going through a book of the Bible, and this is now on our plate. Second quick um, disclaimer. Next week and the following week, my plan, unless the Lord were to move, it's my full plan, is that we will spring from today's message, and we're not going to jump into verse 8, but we're going to take two weeks to go over church government and why, what the Bible, the New Testament, has to say about church government and why we do what we do and why we should do what we do. So while we're here, we're going to like, hey, since we're passing this way, we're only going to be here once. You know, I don't think I'll be preaching acts again, you know, in the coming future. So while we're here, we're going to go ahead and hit this on why we do what we do. So we'll be hitting a kind of a two-part topical message of church government moving forward. Number one, the problem. In most churches, there are people that want to see church growth. Cuz we've just read in these days when the number of disciples was increasing. That's awesome. The disciples are increasing, the church is growing. A lot of people in their heart, they really do want to see church growth, but unfortunately you could take some and split them into two groups. There are some that want to see church growth simply because they like to be part of something exciting. Want to be part of something. And if you look at their 20 year track record, they kind of are always trailing. Wherever there's growth, it's like, oh, let's run over there. They're never really helping, being used by God to cause the church growth. They're kind of always running and chasing it wherever they're at. But then there's this other group. They really want church growth for spiritual reasons. Why? Because it means people are getting saved and people are living their life for the glory of God. And we love that. Yes, we want more and more. Now, here's what's sad there's another group, there's a third group. They don't want church growth. They don't want it. They got their nice little club. Things are good as it is, and they don't want it to be disrupted. I think there's also a fourth group that I would put in there. They think they want church growth. They really think they do, but nothing in their life, none of their activity is actually fostering or supporting church growth. In fact, subconsciously, they think they want church growth, but as the Lord starts supplying it, they start doing weird things that like refuses and rejects the growth. And there's this underlying issue. They don't even realize, like, oh, yeah, we want to grow. Well, why do you keep doing that? When the Lord sends us people, you kind of... Thankfully, none of those negative ones are here today. These are... Everybody in here wants church growth for spiritual reasons. Uh, He said sarcastically, (laughs) but hopefully... Write this down. This passage illustrates how growing churches, that's an awesome thing, yes. What we need to remember and understand is that sometimes growing churches often present challenges, specifically at the beginning in two areas, shepherding and administration. There can be challenges in the shepherding area and the administration. And here's the other dynamic, growing churches Often, just by nature, that bring together people that have different personalities and different backgrounds. I hear that and I think, man, that is awesome. Uh, The older I get, the more I want that. People with different personalities, different backgrounds. Man, we we want the church at Graceview to look like the church around the world. That would be awesome in my world. But you got to understand, not everybody's going to have the exact same personality like you. And they're not going to have the same culture. And that's the dynamic that is taking place here in the early church. It has finally come to a point. All this growth has kind of brought a problem, a challenge. But as Warren Wearsby says, challenges and problems are really opportunities to improve if we address them correctly. Look at verse 1. Now in these days when when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So I want to invite you right now, and I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence. I'm going to say a few things. I don't want to just like bog down. I know there are some of you that like you read that and everything that I'm about to write, we're going to put on the screen. You know it backwards and forwards, and that's awesome. But I also know that there's some people that I don't want to just throw some things on the screen and we write the words down, but we don't really know what it means. So I need to do a quick balance. Let's hit it. Hopefully understand. Ask the Lord right now, Lord, help me to understand these next concepts. Who are the Hellenists? Write this down. In fact, I'm going to do what I normally don't do. Can we go ahead and have the whole note, and I'm going to teach to the note while we're kind of writing. Rather than me, we usually do it the other way. Notice this. Look at the screen. The Hellenists were Jews who had lived as part of the dispersion of Jews, the dispersion of Jews, outside of Palestine. They had been reared and raised and born outside of what we call Israel, the land of Palestine, As part of this dispersion of the Jews that happened in the Old Testament after the exiles. So I don't take for granted that everybody in here has a clue what exiles mean. I know some in here, you've probably heard this said many, many times. But if you had to take a test on it, you'd be like, I don't know. Okay, so we want to just touch on it. In the Old Testament, there were these exiles. But the Hellenists here in Acts chapter 6 are ones who, though they were born and reared in other areas, they were still Jewish. And they had made their way to Jerusalem because they were Jewish for feasts. And while they were there... It doesn't say for sure, but I'm picturing while they're there offering their sacrifices at Passover or Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And they're like, what's all this over here? And they go and they stand and they get in on the back of it. And all of a sudden, these guys are preaching that we're no longer looking for the Messiah. The Messiah's already come. His name is Jesus. He's more than a great deliverer. He's a savior from sin because he died on a cross and he's resurrected and rose again. And he's empowered these guys to give his message. And here they came from out of town and they're here to do this. They end up hearing this. And in the moment they get saved by faith, putting their faith and trust in Christ. And now, rather than just go back home, they just stay in Jerusalem. That's why I believe Jerusalem's swelling. It's swelling because it's these Hellenists are swelling the ranks of the, of the population of the city of Jerusalem. So you see the first part of that. Does that make sense? Watch. If you were to go back and study like the 750 years of history. I'm not going to do that now. Right before the time of Christ, go back 750 years, you would find a group called the Assyrians. You've heard of Jonah and Nineveh. The Assyrians came and conquered the northern part of Israel and they put those Jews in exile. Not all of them, but their best and brightest. And they took them to outside lands. Later on, the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians, and the Babylonians carry away in exiles the best and the brightest of the southern Jews down in Judah, and they carry them away to other lands. So the Assyrians are replaced by the Babylonians, but who ends up beating the Babylonians? The, starts with a P, the Persians come. This is just world history. It's not just the Bible. The Persians defeat the Babylonians. And then the Persians say, hey, Jews that's been brought into exile, you can go back home because no nation is is so attached to their land as the Jews are to their land. Like God has given them, there are boundaries named, specific boundaries in the Old Testament. This is their land. And so the Persians said, you can go back home. Some Jews went back home. Some delayed, took their time. And some had never made it back at this point. But they're still Jewish. And so they still go for the feast and they go back home. And of course now you say, well, then why are they called Hellenists? Because who eventually defeats the Persians? Again, we're covering 750 years. The Greeks. Alexander the Great and the Greeks defeat the Persians. But, and by the way, the Greek culture just takes over and their language. You see there at the end, these Hellenists probably spoke the Greek language. They probably, their Bible would have been the first translation of the Bible called the Septuagint, from the Hebrew put into the Greek because they didn't know how to read Hebrew. They had been in this other culture so long. Does that give you kind of an idea of the Hellenists, Lord willing? All right, move on. So then who are the Hebrews? Write this down. The Hebrews were native Jews who were reared in Israel who spoke Aramaic as their primary language. They would have spoken Aramaic. And so they're different. They're not, probably not reading the same Bible. They're not speaking the same language yet. They've all trusted in the same Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice at the end of your note there, this is very important. And we're talking about Judaism here. So Christianity is not Judaism. But within Judaism, there was a rivalry between These dispersed Jews who had never made the move to move back into the land of Israel. And those who either their forefathers or they themselves, we've moved back to the land. And so there's this looking downward of what's here called the Hebrews, this group of people. So before the church, there's this pre-existing rivalry. Let me explain it this way. Do you all remember as we went through the book of Matthew, there was always that tension of the Judeans against the Galileans? Remember that? The Judeans the look down their nose at the Galilean. Jesus is a Galilean. Those fishermen are Galilean. They, they, they can't be the real thing. God's not using them. They're Galileans. But at least in what we're talking about, they're all within the land of Palestine. The Galileans are in the land of Israel. So if they had that rivalry with them, how much more so to those other Jews of the dispersion who never even made their way back to Israel? There's a real tension there. And I don't know for sure, but it is possible that because it was preexisted in Judaism, that when these people get saved, they actually can, I think, subconsciously even bring some of that rivalry into the church, though Jesus died so that there would be no division within the church. It's kind of like, anyway, I- I've heard this. I've, have, you seen, have you ever seen a true Christian, but they're so immature in their faith that if they're from one part of the country, they'll talk bad about Christian, people from another part of the country? You ever heard that? It's horrible. Or one fan base is a Christian and like, really, it seems to have like a problem with people of another fan base of a sport where they kick a piece of leather around. And you feel like, like, you're joking, right? Huh? You are joking, Right? Yeah. No, there's a rivalry. It's almost like their little football rivalry gets to make its way into the church. I'm glad we don't have that here. Really, I've never sensed that. I don't think that. If so, you need to repent really quickly. That would be horrible. Um, So what's taking place? Look back at verse 1, and let's finish the first point quickly. In those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's taking place? We don't know for sure. So I'm going to throw a couple of things out. It is clear that what has happened at this point is this distribution where the apostles are receiving people's money. they sold their houses and land to help take care of the poor. As the money keeps coming and the church keeps growing more and more, now all of a sudden it's gotten too big for them to do on their own. So they probably have some helpers. Could it be that subconsciously the helpers... Again, subconsciously are showing bias. Could it be that there's a language barrier? That they're not giving them what they should have given that group? It is possible. We don't know for sure. Is it language barrier? Is it it actual bias? Is it subconscious bias? I'm going to give you my opinion. This is just my opinion. That's why it's not in your notes. Just my opinion. If this group over here represented the Hellenists and this group over here represented the native to Israel Jews called the Hebrews, Think about it. You have your home. You live in Jerusalem. Your life, the only change is you now go to the temple and have house churches to worship Jesus. And you may not offer all the sacrifices you used to. You guys have totally left your life behind. Whatever wealth you had is days and days away potentially. I mean, you, you like saved up for this big trip. Maybe on the every three or four years we go to Jerusalem. And while there, you got saved. Whatever wealth you have or whatever family you have to help you, they're way away from you. And now, watch, what if in the daily distribution we're giving the exact same amount? All of you are the, are the Hellenist widows and you're the Hebrew widows. And we give the exact same amount, be it money or food it's going to go a lot further for you than it would be for you because your houses are paid off and you have connections in town. You guys are starting from scratch, and so it just doesn't seem like it's enough. I think that might have been what's happening. Number two, would you notice with me this morning? The non-negotiables of the apostles. The non-negotiables of the apostles. And that comes in verse 2 and verse 4. So look at verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 4, after verse 3, you'll pick seven men. But verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. One of the first things I notice about this is what's not said. And I'm going to read between the lines. I'm trying to be honest with you. What I'm about to say is not in the text. But I think, I think this is the tone. There's this complaint. The text does not say that the Hellenists were upset because they thought their widows were neglected. The text says because their widows were being neglected. So the first thing I notice is that the apostles do not come out and say, Hey, we didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no problem here. We've not... No. I think all we have is a snippet in the bottom line of what they have to say. But there's a whole meeting. You know there was much more than this. What I believe is, is the, the tone of this is this. Hellenist, we failed you. We have failed you. People have been bringing it in. We're, we're, no, no excuses. But the task has grown, and we're still 12. We were 120, and then went to 3,000, and all of a sudden people start doing this, and it's like, okay, we, we do this, but yeah, we'll do this also. And it just kept going and going, and now it's just like, wow. And it did isn't right. It wasn't intentional. But we failed you because we're limited. We are really limited in our time. We have the same 24 hours in our day as you have, and we're limited in our ability. We're fishermen, okay? We're just fishermen. That's what we do, but Jesus taught us and commanded us and called us, and so now we do this this happened and we we've, we've been doing the best we can but we have failed you and we're sorry but the solution is not for us to give even more of our time to fix this that's not the solution because if we do that now we've not only neglected you we will be neglecting something far more important and that's our preaching so we hope you understand we're really sorry we have a plan but the plan is not us to give more time to this. It can't be that. Verse number two has a phrase at the end of it. It's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. What does serve tables? Write this down if you're taking notes. To serve tables refers to monetary matters, meals like food, or both. It's hard to say. In fact, I read two or three translations this week that took the liberty, and by the way, they did take liberty to say the daily distribution of food because this doesn't necessarily have to be just food. No doubt there was food distribution, but I believe there was also money being distributed on maybe not daily, but on an as-needed basis. And you've got to figure there's lots of charts, a lot of record-keeping. This thing is just growing. Administrative demands have climbed. I mean, the disciples, praise the Lord, they're being added to the church. But wow, the workload has gotten way out of control and way beyond their ability we have a word that we use in, our, in, in English called bank, B-A-N-K. It comes from a Latin word, banca, with a C, B-A-N-C-A. Banca in Latin means bench. What the word, and why where, where we get our word bank from, is the bench would be where money changers would set up their table in their bench, and they would take this form of, of money and give back the, the equivalent amount in a different form of money, and that's where we get our idea of bank. And so it's the tables. And what the apostles are saying... We can't stop doing this to serve tables. So I want you to write this also. The whole tone here has nothing. This is important that you get this. Nothing in what's being proposed means the apostles are too good to count the money. It's not that... We're too good to count the money. We're too good to handle the money. We're too good to go buy things and box them up and put them in the right portions and distribute it. It's not about being too good. These guys are fishermen. They're used to getting their hands dirty. All you want to do is just use your voice anymore. You guys have gotten lazy. That is not it at all. It was not that the apostles were too good to count money and hand out food. If you're taking notes, it is that God had specially called them to preach God's word. There's a simple fact. It is simple. It is really simple because of time. We all have the same. The more these apostles are serving tables, be it handing out food or money, the more they're doing that, the less they're actually preaching. And so here's where I'm going to start using a term that I will not take time today, and that's why you need to come back next week and the following. I'm going to start using a term springing from this. For the following. Based only on what we've read in verses 1 and 2 and what we have an understanding, I believe there is a lesson here. It's a lesson. It's a goal. Ideally, senior leadership in the church will not have to handle the finances or the details of physical needs. Ideally. There are times where Senior leadership in the church has to count the money and has to allocate it and make reports and, and take it and run it to the bank. I'm telling you, that's not what you want. We don't want that. They don't need that. You don't need that. There's too many questions. to me. But really here, the point is not just the honesty and the integrity that it would demand. It's the whole time factor. You don't want that. You don't need that. In a perfect world, we don't have that. Praise the Lord. I have never one day counted the money here. I don't count the money. I don't know who gives what. I shouldn't have said that. Because some of you be like, oh, well, if you don't know, then I'm not going to give. Okay. I really, I don't know who gives. I don't know who gives how much. I don't want to know. I really don't. We have other people burdened with that. And I think that's one of the principles. Why? Because if they're doing that, that's distracting them from their other priority that they've been called to. This is not a direct quote. But N.T. Wright had a phraseology that kind of caught my ear. Now, he's Scottish or Irish, I forget, but I'm going to apply it and make a sentence out of his phrasing. Hear the apostles. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Many people in American churches view Bible teaching and Bible preaching as an optional extra for those who are into that sort of thing. And I'm not lying, that is true. There are churches, they call themselves churches, and their their real thought is Bible teaching, Bible preaching, that's an optional extra. You know, some people are into that. Oh, you go to one of those churches that's into the Bible teaching, preaching. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not an optional extra. The apostles are telling us Bible teaching and preaching is core, fundamental, primary to everything that we're doing. It's at the heart of it. And that must never be forgotten. Write this down. So I want you to hear the whole thing. There are things in ministry that are, please hear this, very important. You got to hear the whole thing. There are things in church ministry that are very important and they must be done. I mean, they are crucial, they have to be done, they're very important. But they are not so important that those who teach and preach the Word of God need to stop teaching and preaching the Word of God in order to do them. They're very important. They have to, We got to do this. But it's not so important that those you say, so what should happen? Those who teach and preach the Word of God in response of that, instead of like, this is important, has to be done. I need to no, know what they have to do is lay aside the spirit of indispensability, lay aside the narcissism, and just admit this has to be done. This is important, but I am limited. They have to admit and confess their limitation, and they have to admit and confess God really has indeed equipped and gifted other believers with the ability to carry out these same tasks just as good and in many cases better than we can do it we need to turn them loose in that and let them do these necessary important fundamental must be done tasks you have to have that admission and the apostles are willing to do that i believe there's humility not arrogance in the apostles confession matthew henry based off verse two and three had a really good quote as you're writing that Henry writes about the apostles, They will no more be drawn from their preaching by the money laid at their feet than they will be driven from it by the stripes on their backs. Think about that. Hear it again. They will no more be drawn from their preaching by the money laid at their feet. Oh, that's right. You guys keep bringing the money to us. We, you trust us, so we need to do Guess we can't preach. They will not be drawn away from their preaching by the money laid at their feet any more than they will be driven from preaching by the stripes laid on. You know, if you keep preaching, we're going to punish you. What did they say? Do you all remember? We must obey God. We're, We're going to beat you. You may die. We must obey God. Hey, this needs done. It sure does. We must obey God. We have to obey God. Keep moving in your notes. Based off verses 2 and 4, we learn this. Prayer and God's Word are the highest priority of senior church leaders. Prayer and God's Word are the highest priority of senior church leaders. What it means is people who teach and preach cannot stop feeding spiritual food to eternal souls... To go do a great thing by feeding and clothing physical bodies that are temporary. They can't stop feeding spiritual food to eternal souls to go put physical food into temporary bodies. For them, that would be wrong because others can and are gifted and desirous to do these things. Why would this one group hog the whole process? And it's hit a point. It's time to grow. It's time to improve. We can't do it anymore. We failed you. Search you out among you, seven men. The Lord knows the specifics. Here's my fear I believe there are some senior church leaders, they are devoted to prayer. They're devoted to prayer. Man, they pray. But they're not devoted to the Word of God. Man, they pray. But when it comes time to teach and preach, got a quick little verse, downloaded a story, always got a nice story, a little poem, do the first, second, and last stanza of a a hymn, pull that in, uh, and then a good tearjerker at the end, and we're going to call that the sermon for the day. But man, they love, they, they pray. Then there are others, boy, they labor over sermons and lessons. I mean, they work and work, but they really don't pray. They are not devoted to prayer. There's a third category. This is the worst. There are some who call themselves pastors and reverend and all that. They are not devoted to prayer or the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. They're not devoted to either one. All they do is social work and they walk around with a title reverend in front of them and they get lots of microphones put in front of their face by CNN when big events happen. I'll not say Jesse's name, but you can kind of figure some stuff out. I don't like, I want to hear you preach about Jesus. This is awesome. Nothing wrong with this work, but if you're going to use that title, you need to be preaching to people about Jesus and salvation. That should be your main message. And there's some, they're not devoted to prayer, they're not devoted to work. Some, it's one or the other. If you teach and preach the Word of God in any capacity, you're being called to a higher level of study and a higher level of prayer. I want to keep this thought going. And by the way, just so you know, this second point is the largest by far of the five. Write this thought. Prayer, what we learn in chapter, four, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the Word. Like, wait, where did this come from? Prayer is an equal part of God's call for all who serve as senior leaders in the church. It's an equal part of the call. It's on equal ground. I'm not going to say that it requires the same equal time. I'm not going to get legalistic like if you spend X amount of hours studying and preaching, then you need to have X amount of hours praying. I'm not saying that. What we're saying is it's an equal call, it should have an equal burden, an equal pull. So to be clear, all believers need to be praying. All believers need to, this is in no way means I guess other church members and deacons don't need to be about prayer. No, all believers need to be praying. But those who are in senior positions of leadership better be praying more than everybody else. Why? Yes, more than everybody else. It's your job. You do it. It's your task. It's part of the call. Don't just get out there and labor over sermons. You've got to labor in prayer. Here's what I have found in my life. This is my life. I have found that the real secret to prayer, to power, is prayer. That's what I have found. The real secret is prayer. I've learned this. God can reach people without my preaching or anybody else's preaching. He doesn't need our preaching. But our preaching can never reach anyone without God's power. Prayer is on equal footing. If a senior leader in the church neglects prayer, by the very nature of his position of leadership, he has an even more negative effect of other church members who also neglect prayer. No one should neglect prayer but those who are in positions of senior leadership should pray even more. The more you teach, the more you preach, the more it is expected of you to be praying. That's what I'm taking from the text. Just before we hit the third point, would you join me in First Timothy? It's the only, I think the only time I'll have you step over and look at First Timothy chapter 4. It's just one of the several places. Because maybe someone's here this morning and... and You're a thinker, and you're paying attention, and you may be thinking this. Hey, Jeff, you know what you've done? You have just kind of taken an arbitrary leap away from what it's talking about here in the Bible about the apostles, and you've kind of just started applying it to this terminology that you have of senior church leaders. Are you allowed to do that? Is that right? You're kind of saying what this over here is also about this group, and that could get dangerous. Okay, is it? That's a good question. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Look at... Paul has left Timothy. Paul's going to Greece. He's left Timothy in a city called Ephesus in what we call Turkey. Timothy, I'm leaving you here. You're going to set things in order. And he's telling him, I hope to come back to you soon, but I want you to set things in order in the church and how they should be. And so he's kind of leaving him as the senior church leader. Though Timothy's not an apostle, Timothy is being placed as a pastor in this setting. And he's going to be over other pastors and among other pastors because Paul the apostle has now moved on. Look at what Paul writes to this pastor who's there to kind of make sure the other pastors in the local ministry there, after the apostles, that it stays on track. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Timothy, command and teach these things. Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy, I know you're only about 30 years old, and you're in this culture in this day and age where 30-year-olds are way down on the totem pole. You let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example. Timothy, here's your job. You need to be teaching, you need to be commanding, and you need to be setting the example. Verse 12 again. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Watch verse 13. Here we go. Until I come, devote yourself. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that they all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in... I think we got it the fifth time, Paul. I think we got it the fifth time. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will both save yourself and your hearers. Devote yourself. Do not neglect. Practice. Immerse yourself. Keep a close watch on. Persist. Yeah, that chapter 6 in Acts, that's just about the apostles, right? No. Write it down. The emphasis in Acts 6 was not just about the calling of the apostles. It also applies to pastors who must devote, immerse themselves in the public reading, in the exhortation, in the teaching. This is going to dominate your life. And I believe verse 16 there in Timothy also implies prayer. I mean, you keep a close watch on yourself. I think what Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, when you are praying your private life, you are actually serving the Ephesian church. When you are praying and agonizing in your own life, you're serving the Ephesian church. So there's some non-negotiables among the apostles. Number three, as you make your way back to Acts, would you notice with me, and by the way, the points get much shorter as we can finish up, would you notice the solution and the procedure in verses three, five, and six? Here's the solution. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this duty. And then verse five, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen and the list Of the seven. Verse six, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So here's the solution to the problem. What about, okay, that's great. You guys are going to keep doing that, but what's the solution for this issue that we're having here in the church? Pick seven men. Warren Wearsby writes The apostles were not afraid to share their authority and ministry with others. That's important. I like that. The apostles, like, hey, this is your authority. This is your ministry. This is your responsibility. Anything I can share with anybody else, I'm going to share it. I want to let them do it too. Now, there's some things they can't share with me. But I want to share what we can. Pick out among you seven men. So I'm not going to dig into this. I do want to say two things about this number seven, seven men. This didn't hit me until this year. I found it in. I think because I'm thinking along these lines already for a reason. One of the things I noticed is the congregation was given a specific number to look for. So remember that. We need to remember that. They did not say, hey, search out these three qualifications. Here's the qualifications. Find some men. And then here they come to the next meeting. Oh, did y'all find somebody? Yep, we're it. Wait, what? Yeah, 237 of us. We're ready to do it. 237 deacons. Uh, no, no, what we need is Seven. We just need seven. But also I want you to notice that the number seven here is not given as a mandate for all churches. This was a number that was come up to meet their specific need. Their need. They were a church of 20,000 plus people. And they had seven deacons. And I've been in a church before that had about 400, 450 people and had 15 deacons. Okay. Is that wrong or bad? No. I believe, I'm giving you my opinion, I think it's fairly safe to say, this church of 20,000 people is looking for seven people that's going to be full-time employees. They're going to be full-time employees. So it's unlike the other church where the deacons were all volunteers. We're probably talking about people that are put on the payroll. And they're going to like, this is going to be your life now. Notice they were pleased. Look at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Why did that please them? I'm going to offer the following. They're pleased because their spiritual leaders are not dictators. Wait a minute. They listened to us. They cared. This matters to them. They're willing to take an action. So they're not dictators. They're pleased. Why? Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You guys don't want to handle the money? We'd really rather not. Take it for what it's worth. Opinion. If you find spiritual leaders that are all juiced, all excited, all the time about the money, look out. That's yeah, red flag. Red flag. Be careful. This pleases them because, let me get this straight, you as our spiritual leaders want to give yourselves more to prayer and to preaching and teaching? We like that. That's a good thing. You don't want to handle the money. You want to dig in over here. You feel a burden for this, and you're listening to us, and we want to address the problem. This sounds like a good plan, and so what is the plan? Pick out among you seven men. Now, I realize this as I've gone through the week. My note there, the solution and procedure, is very misleading because of the note I'm about to have you write. It is misleading. Write this down. The Bible actually here gives us principles but no specific details of the procedures for selecting deacons. It gives us principles but not specific details of procedures the actual procedure and processes of how to do this. I'm not going to bore you with various scenarios in my head, but I'm pretty confident it did not happen this way. Hey, we hear you. Here's the solution. We're not going to stop doing this, so pick you out among you seven men. I nominate Stephen. Okay, Stephen. Oh, Stephen. This one, that one, that one. Oh, there we have it. I nominate Bob. Sorry, we've already got seven. Bob looked like, nope, Nicolaus was the last one, we're good, we've got our... That's not what happened. There was a process. Who took the lead? How did they go about doing it? How many other names were brought up beyond these seven? I'm sure there were many others, but through a process, they actually end up getting down to the seven that we see that have the Greek names that makes us think they may have all been Hellenists, which may have been a great sign of the grace by the Hebrews to say, You know what? you thought there was an issue, all, all the guys that are going to do it from now on are going to come from your side. We just want to make it right. Would you write this down? Each church must apply the principles, but adopt their own specifics. So the Bible doesn't give us specifics of the procedures. It gives us principles. Each church, because I've looked for this, I don't know that any church out there says, hey, we've read the Bible, and here's the exact procedure of how you go down to the detail of how you find the deacons in your church. Here's exactly how the Bible. It doesn't say. It gives principles, but no details. Quickly, and lastly on this third point, and this is another one. If this strikes you as odd this morning and in any way self-serving, I want to strongly encourage you please come back the next two weeks when we'll have time to defend this note. But while we're here in Acts 6, it is right to write the following. Verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you. You pick out from among you. At the end of verse 3, whom we will appoint. Would you write this down? Democracy is not the biblical form of church government. Democracy, it is great for America. Democracy is not the biblical form of church government based on the New Testament. Did you notice what happens here? The people will nominate seven men, but the apostles are going to actually appoint and evaluate them. The Bible says they presented these seven, and then they prayed and laid their hands. I've even wondered this. Was there any time gap between this praying and laying hands? Here's the seven that we're presenting to the apostles, and then they prayed and laid their hands. Was it simply laying hands and prayed and commissioned them? may have been that simple. But the laying on of the hands is saying, we approve of what you've done. We are associating ourselves with these men. It's common throughout the Bible. When there's laying on of hands... If you were offering an animal sacrifice, what you would do is you'd lay your hands on that animal because it's going to be killed in your place. I'm associating with it. I'm identifying it. The scapegoat and the one that would be slaughtered, the high priest would, by essence, by identifying with, putting his hands on the sins of Israel, were going on the one goat. And the other goat was, again, being carried away. But there's an association. What the apostles are doing here is saying, we agree with your choice. We are identifying with it. We're associating. We are approving of this. But was there a gap of time? Is the prayer before that just a prayer of dedication, Lord, to use them? Or was it a prayer of discernment? Lord, lead us. Are these the right ones? It is, Lord. Okay. And then they lay their hands. And that's not real clear there. Would you write the following? This displays democracy is not the biblical way of church government. The people nominated, the apostles appointed, and this... Again, I'm making a jump here, admittedly, that we're going to defend in the next two weeks. This displays a principle that those that God places in senior leadership do evaluate those who are appointed to other positions of leadership. In this case, the deacons. They do. The senior leadership. I know I've jumped from apostles in chapter 6, but I think we're going to see this played out throughout the book of Acts as we come to it. The Bible definitely talks about senior leadership in the church, and this is God's decision. God made a decision about senior leadership. It's going to come up in Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 14, Acts 15, strongly in Acts chapter 20. It's in Hebrews chapter 13. It's in 1st. Peter chapter 5, the key there is that those who are given this weight of responsibility, they are to be servant leaders. They are never to lord over people. They are not to be dictators and narcissists. They are to be in communication with God in his word, communication with the Holy Spirit, and in communication with the people and hearing from the people. And in all of that process, the Holy Spirit and the word of God directing. And if there's a time, these are the ones that we're nominating for these positions that have been put to us. We nominate these people. And then there's an evaluation. Why? Because those in senior leadership may know something about a candidate or candidates that doesn't need to go public, that is private, but possibly could disqualify from that position. And that's just common sense. Number four. Still out of verse three, would you notice with me? So we've seen the problem, we've seen their non-negotiables, we've seen the solution and Principles, really, rather than procedures. Number four, would you notice the qualifications of the deacons? Notice the qualifications. Verse number three, there are three that are named here. Paul will later on name like another ten in First Timothy chapter three. Would you look at verse three? Therefore, brothers, prick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Three things. And I'm gonna combine them into one note. Watch. They have to be of good repute. They have to be of good reputation. And I want y'all to help me with the word. Think it first. Don't say it. They have to have a good they have to have a reputation. They have to have a good reputation. Don't say it. a good reputation as what? They can tell some good jokes. Have to have a reputation of being humorous? Eh. Have to have a reputation of being strong-willed. Have to have a good reputation of... What is it? Think about it. They have to have a good reputation as being what kind of men? What comes to your mind? I'm sorry? Godly. We're going to get to that. Say it. Trustworthy. I thought you said it another way. Honorable. Integrity is the word we're going to use in a moment. Honest. Got to be honest. So remember this. Anytime you're looking at people fill this position, number one, number one, are they honest? Because they're going to be over money. In this case, large sums of money. So they must be of the highest moral integrity. That's one of the qualifications. Deacons must be of the highest moral integrity because they're going to be potentially around the money and in this case, large sums, and at times, large sums of money. Got to be honest. But now, guys, listen. Is it possible that in Anderson County there are unsaved people that are honest? that You could trust them with the money. They are. There are in our county. So that's not the only qualification. Number two, they have to be full of the Holy Spirit. Right, Brother Jeff, they need to be saved. Uh, hello, everybody in the church should be saved. We're looking for more than saved. All saved people are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We need more than just indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We need men that have a reputation of being, I mean, honest, highest moral integrity, and men who are known to be men of the Spirit. I don't believe, I've never met anybody that is always full of the Spirit, but they need to be like regularly full of the Spirit, not just indwelt by the Spirit, but full. And the word full, think of a sailboat, old sailboat, not the new ones that have the motor. Right Now we've got the motor, the backup motor. That's great. That, that's the only one I would ever get in. You're not getting me in a sailboat. That's just, where's the real power? What if the wind like comes? Up, I've read Acts 27 too many times. I'm not getting on those kind of things. But it's talking about when the wind feels the sail and it's empowering. It's providing the power and carrying that boat along to be a deacon in God's church. You need to be like of the highest moral integrity, a man of the spirit, a person that is known to be full and carried along. Y'all, y'all help me. What we've learned so far in the book of Acts. It's been a few weeks now. But what we've learned is when someone is full of the Holy Spirit. It always affects their what? Speech. Five of these guys we're never going to hear from again in the text. But two of them we're going to find. They know how to speak for the Lord because they're full of the Spirit. And lastly, the last qualification. They must be full of wisdom. So it's not just honest. That's great. That's not enough by itself. Saved. Yes, of course. Spiritual. Yes, spiritual. Godly, spiritual men. That still is not enough. Everybody listen. This is important. This is important what I'm saying. Being honest by itself is not enough. Being a spiritual man, a godly man by itself is not enough. The man must also be skilled and wise. Have good common sense. To practically jump in and be able to have skill toward finances or toward physical issues. Working often with the hands if need be. Would you write this down? Deacons are not to be just honest or spiritual. They must also have useful skills to shepherd and administrate God's people and God's work. You could say it this way. They must be good men and godly men and gifted men. They must be honest and spiritual and again, skilled, gifted, wise. Last thought before we hit the fifth point this morning. The Amplified Bible writes of verse 3. Quote, talking about the deacons here, these seven men that were nominated, they could be trusted with responsibility and authority. They could be trusted with responsibility. And they're on to it. What they're saying is, hey, we need you to find seven guys that when we give it them this, We know it's done. It will be done. We are not going to have to worry about this. It will be done and done the right way. It'll be on time, the right way, and it'll be of the highest integrity. That's the kind of people we need you to find. And they put forth seven. John Stott gives the following, and I can't leave the fourth point without offering it to you. So we're talking about the qualifications. Stott writes, quote, It is surely deliberate, please get this, it is surely deliberate that the work of the twelve and the work of the seven are both called ministry or service. Serving tables, ministry of the word. They're both ministry means, sir, I'm in the ministry. Oh, you're in the service. Yes. Again, it is surely deliberate that the work of the twelve and the work of the seven are both called ministry or service. The former... 12 is quote the ministry of the word or pastoral work. The ministry, the latter, it's called the ministry of the tables or social work. So please get you have the 12 ministry of the word, pastoral work, you have the seven ministry of the tables. Social work, Stott writes, neither ministry is superior to the other. On the contrary, both are Christian ministries. That is, ways. both are ways of serving God and His people. Both require spiritual people, full of the Spirit, to exercise them. It's not that this is the greatest and the only. No, this is an awesome way to serve God and His people. you got to be spiritual and godly and skilled and called into that. Lastly, number, seven, number five, out of verse seven. Let's just briefly look at the results. Briefly look at the results. After you've written that one word, I know your notes are finished. I ran out of space. Or you would have another note. Just ran out. Sometimes you just got to choose. What makes the cut? And it was late, and I was heading to a graduation, and those are the ones that made a cut, the cut. But God is sovereign, so that's good. All right. Don't check out yet. Ready? Would you look at verse 7 quickly? We're just going to touch on the results. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me say first about that third part. 7C. That's awesome. These priests apparently were not part of the Sadduceean hierarchy that had to do with the Sanhedrin. These appear to be the lower ranking priests. How this happens, I don't know. Did they just go to work day after day, checking in and keep seeing the church over there in Solomon's portico? Did they just happen finally to just like, hey, honey, tomorrow or today I'm going to be home a little later. Why? I just want to go check this out. And before they know it, they're drawn in and drawn in and they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that's what happened. But they're not part of that Sadduceean hierarchy and all the power structure. These are the low-ranking priests. The text does not say, did they give up their sacrifices or did they just keep on serving as priests until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed? The text doesn't say, praise the Lord, many were brought in. Would you look at 7B? Look at 7B. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests, 7C, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I'm going to ask you a quick question. Why did 7B and C happen? Say it. Because of 7A. Look at it again. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why? Because of 7a. And the word of God continued to increase. Why did 7a happen? Because the apostles refused to get distracted with another line of work. They kept teaching and preaching. And God blessed it. And the church grew more and more. And now they have dealt with a problem. Let me read and I'll be finished. When true men of God are undistracted, undistracted to obey their call. Let me say it again. When true men of God are undistracted to obey their call. Now listen. Undistracted to obey the call. Not just, hey, I've got them doing everything. So what are you doing? Chilling out. Just chilling. I don't really do it. I'm not devoted to prayer or the word. Yeah, you need to get a different job. When true men of God are undistracted to obey their calling and when church members are given freedom to exercise their unique spiritual gifts to serve the body, the result is that God's work is multiplied. That's what we're after. Stott writes it better than I just read it from my notes. Again, one more from Stott. He says a vital principle is illustrated in this incident, which is of urgent importance to the church today. He says a vital principle. He really has three vital principles. Here it is. The principle is that, number one, God calls all his people to ministry, that he calls different people to different ministries. And then three, and that those called to prayer in the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. Here's this quote again. A vital principle is illustrated in this incident, which is of urgent importance to the church today. It is that God calls all his people to ministry. All his people, you, you're called to ministry. That he calls different people to different ministries. I can't do that. I'm not, that's fine. What are you good at? You've been equipped to do something. And that those called to prayer in the ministry of the Word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. That's their priority. This is your priority. Heads about eyes closed just for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Just before I pray this morning, can I ask you this? Just answer in your own heart a few questions. like Be honest with yourself. How are you... Helping to serve the needs of our local body. Ask that of yourself and hopefully you're able to answer. How am I individually as a Christian? If you are a Christian, how can you say specifically that you are helping to meet the needs of our local body? There are many ways to serve at Graceview. How are you serving? How are you serving? Number two, I've got to ask this. There are more people sitting here today than there were six years and... Ten months ago, when we arrived, God has increased our number. So here, I'm going to ask you, and I need you to answer. As God has increased our number, or as the Lord will increase our number in the future, have you personally, and will you personally, be gracious? Will you be gracious? If you were here with us seven years ago, if you were here five years ago, three years ago, Are you gracious as the Lord sends us people? Do you find yourself, well, okay, their personality is a little different. They have a different background. They look a little, praise the Lord. Be gracious. Wrap them up in our love. Make it clear you are welcomed here. Number three, I'd be remiss if I did not challenge this specific group. If you in any way, on any level, teach or preach the scriptures... I got to ask you, are you committed to the Word of God? Are you committed to study? Are you just winging it? Last minute, throw it together, give it 30 minutes, search on the internet for something, be a nice little fun game. Are you committed to the Word of God? Are you devoted, immersed in it? Also, are you equally, equally devoted, committed, immersed? in prayer prayer is not second and lastly just before we have our meeting here in a moment I'm going to ask all of you would you begin praying now for God's will in future appointments at Graceview I'm asking you now would you begin praying for God's will in future appointments Father we thank you for your word when I know this unusual text today of teaching, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know what your word says, to learn its principles, and glean where we can about specific procedures. And when those are not there, Lord, that we would still just surrender and seek a multitude of counsel and really be really in tune with you and your Holy Spirit. And just know the need that is here so that it can be communicated and filled. Lord, we thank you that you have met our needs. You have met our needs. And so, Lord, as the day approaches... Not far away where it seems like you will have us to have some new appointments. I pray, Lord, that you would give us great wisdom. Settle in our hearts. Lord, may there be no agendas, no pride. May it all be laid aside. May we all seek to know and to fulfill and use our gifts to do all the things and fill the roles that you want us to, to advance your kingdom. So, Father, I pray that we would be found to be a very gracious church. And, Lord, we trust you to grow us as you see fit in your sovereignty. For Christ's glory, we pray in his name. Amen. Got a meeting in five minutes, all right? Five minutes. That would be just the members, just the members.